I'm JG Michael, and this is Parallax Views. Hello, this is Mike Swanson. In a few moments, you're going to listen to another segment of Parallax Views. But before you do that, let me tell you about my new book, Why the Vietnam War. It's a sequel to my previous book called The War State, which has lots of positive reviews and Amazon's been out for years. But this one is a more detailed case study of how American Empire National Security State operate using Vietnam. And I believe it shows also how things work today, how policy is actually made and why. So grab the book on Amazon.com, Why the Vietnam War. This edition of Parallax Views is brought to you by the $10 and above tier supporters of Parallax Views on Patreon. So, with that in mind, producers credit shoutouts to Gunner, Mark, Alexander, Catherine, Kilo, Emilia, Jeff, John, Bert, Brian, Elliot, Michael, Brace, Nick, Merisham. Galen, Arlen, Bo, Gigadelic Media, Chance, Chase, Dan, David H. Y. Kellerman, Saded 13, David, Ava, Bob, The West Bank Robbery Podcast, Jamie, Enoch, Gary, Max, Ishtofer, James, Martin, Matthew Ho, Brian, Nobody, Thomas, and Dano. And now on to the show. My niece got me a kazoo. How are you doing, JG? I'm doing good. This intro is going to be a bit different from most of the episodes I do, because I have a co-host, the one and only... Bassam, who I accidentally called Carl Barks because that of his Zoom, Zoom name. name in the interview you're going to hear uh, in just a few minutes here. But Bassam is the host of the West Bank Robbery Podcast. Uh, Bassam, maybe you want to introduce yourself to my audience. Hey, guys. I don't know. I'm like a Palestinian guy. I've been involved in lots of kinds of activism and stuff throughout the 2010s. Um, I don't know. I've been reading a lot. Uh, I've had a, you know, a variety of interesting jobs and stuff. Uh, you know, our podcast is like kind of focused around Palestine, but we cover a lot of other stuff. Um, we just put out a new series on, uh, the assassination of Olaf Palme, uh, from a Swedish perspective. Uh, and just as a teaser for that, uh, Olaf Palme was accused of being like a militant member of the PLO. Yeah, very, very interesting series. Um, you know, I would recommend the podcast. Uh, JG listens. Yes, I do. Also, Olaf yeah. Palme. That, that's some conspiracy talk that can get down. That's a rabbit hole. Former Prime no, Minister of Sweden. We, we figured it out. We caught the guy. He, the, it should break the news. He's gonna we'll do, leave it at that. They have to listen to the episode. <laughs> okay, you're right, you're right. But uh, maybe you want to uh, talk a little bit about what you've been doing before we get to introducing our guest, uh, the great Israeli new historian, uh, Professor Elon Pape. We'll get to that. But uh, what have you been doing? You've been involved in the uh, protests that have been happening lately. Uh, yeah, you know, I'm not in particularly like a leadership position or anything, but, you know, me and my family and my friends, um, been, you know, we basically don't have Saturdays or Sundays anymore. We always, you know, pick one day a week where everybody heads out there, goes to a protest. Um, I live in Langley, Virginia, the center of the CIA. Um, we record our podcast 75 feet underground. Um, but yeah, DC, it's honestly been beautiful going to these protests, man. Like, it's not a very tall city, so people come out on the roofs and cheer when when the marches are walking by. It's just been, you know, seeing the public support, especially in a city like DC, you know, it, it makes you feel very optimistic. Um, I know JG is a little bit more on the uh, pessimistic side, and I'm a little bit perhaps a little too optimistic at times but yeah i uh, i really enjoyed this elon elon interview it was um it was really good he gave me some really good information 
about um, the time period in which my dad was arrested by the Israeli military. So um, if people don't know, Ilan Pape is one of the Israeli new historians. Uh, so that's figures like Avi Shlam, Benny Morris, Elon, and these historians basically found the smoking gun documents and documentation of crimes against the Palestinians in the very foundation yeah. of the Israeli Putting state. names and numbers, you know, like direct evidence of, you know, what people were saying. It, um, you know, like we, we already like knew a lot of these things to be true just from like oral history, but it's really good to have like the documents and everything to back up your claims. You can never have too much of that. Um, though I do think uh, of the new historians, if that is a valuable label in and of itself, we didn't really get into that. I didn't want to bother him with semantics, but um, yeah, I think he dwarfs all of those other figures. Um, Ilan Pape has been like, he was like the go-to guy, you know? If somebody's ever read a book about Palestine, it's probably tendous about Israel or the ethnic cleansing of Palestine by Elon. Um, very monumental figure. Uh, I was a little bit nervous, but I uh, I don't think that showed in the interview. We were both nervous. But, uh, so Elon, for people that don't know, his books include 10 Myths About Israel, The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, A History of Modern Palestine, the idea of Israel out of frame, which is, I, I'm not sure I would call it a memoir, but it's about, you know, his journey in regards to Israel-Palestine and being a historian tackling those topics, and also this struggle for academic freedom in Israel. So uh, Ilan has written a number of books. Out of Frame is one that you may want to check out if you want the more sort of personal story and what it's like to be an academic covering these topics. The ethnic cleansing of Palestine is uh, really highly regarded as is 10 myths about Israel, but he really is sort of a legend in the field. And we actually got into some interesting topics. What were the takeaways for you? Uh, I really enjoyed just the specifics on his archival work. I find the ways that people get access to documents and like, you know, some of the bureaucratic mess they have to go through what sort of, uh, um, you know, social situations you find yourself in when you're entering into an archive that does not necessarily share your political viewpoint. Um, I found that very helpful. I think uh, archival work, there's a lot of stuff out there, you know, I love archaeology, but you don't necessarily need to be out there digging in the ground. There's a lot of stuff we haven't looked at, particularly in the Levant. Um, very nice guy. I was kind of afraid he would be uh, mean to me, but he was the nicest man. Why were you afraid oh he was going to be yeah. mean to you? Uh, I don't know. I don't know. That was just anxiety. But oh my God, this guy's such a professor, such a friendly, friendly professor type figure. Like, geez, guys, pay for the Patreon. You got to see how many books this man had behind him uh, on on this Zoom call. It was uh, it was incredible. Also, we ended up talking about the Tentora massacre, mm. and that was very interesting because I haven't heard many people, at least recently, ask him about that, and it actually led to his exile. You know, he—I mean, he left Israel, so yeah, they were going to kill him. Well, I, I don't know if they were going to kill him, but no other reason to leave. You know, it's a beautiful nation. You know, well, he—he he, he had problems as an academic covering these topics, and his students were covering these topics, so. That's a really interesting area that you may not have heard Elon talk about in some of the other interviews he's been doing lately. So I really hope listeners enjoy this conversation. One more time, Bassam, can you plug the West Bank robbery? We'll get to the conversation after that. A second time, trying to be humble. Okay, it's the West Bank robbery podcast. We'll have the RSS feed uh, in the show description. Check it out. All right, and uh, off to the interview. Welcome back to Parallax Views. First, my uh, co-host, Carl Barks of the West Bank Robbery Podcast, and also a very special guest. He's been on the show before. Uh, we had him on last time with Ramzi Baroud. He's the author of The Ethnic Cleansing of Palestine, amongst a number of other books. Uh, Professor Ilan Pape. Uh, how are you doing, Ilan? I'm fine. Uh, personally, thank you for having me once again. Uh, in this uh, show and podcast. Carl, I know you're excited for this conversation. Do you want to take the lead here uh, and and start the conversation off? 
Yeah, uh, my family was super excited when I told them that I was interviewing you. Uh, shout out to my cousin Jacob. If you'll enjoy that. Uh, okay. Um, so I've had a, I have you know a lot of thoughts on you know what's going on right now, and I was, I was curious on hearing hearing what you thought about them. Um, one thing that I I feel differently during this current um, round of hostilities. Um, especially at protests and, uh, you know, the various actions that I've been going to and that kind of thing. There's a very different um, feeling at them at this point. I feel like at the moment, the the situation is much more dictated by, like, the military situation on the ground, mm-hmm. um, which kind of absolves, like, me as somebody, you know, not in Palestine of some responsibility, which feels good. Um it doesn't feel like we're necessarily just out in the streets, like begging for a ceasefire or something just for, you know, no real reason, just out of pity, you know, usually is how a lot of the protests in previous years have felt. Um, Do you think the situation now is particularly different from the previous wars? It's a mixed bag. I think in many ways, what we see now we've seen before, but, uh, Probably not with the same intensity and not with the same cruelty and not with the same disastrous consequences. Namely, what Israel was, uh, I mean, the policy Israel imposed on the Gaza Strip before the 7th of October was inhuman, uh, destructive. We all remember a United Nations report from 2020 that... uh, you know, defined the circumstances in Gaza as unsustainable. Uh, already in 2020, uh, the Israeli government in the last two years uh, was on a killing spray in the West Bank before. Uh, and um, well, for all this uh, uh, happened before in a way, I mean, in terms of intention, purpose, method, and so on. But the scope is different. There's no doubt about it. Um uh, the the genocidal policies in Gaza, the the huge ethnic cleansing that already occurred, and the one that might still take place is is on a different proportions and magnitude compared to other things. But to be honest, this is uh, a chapter that uh, resonates with other chapters in the history of Israel's policy towards the Palestinians and the Palestinians' reaction to these. Uh, uh, policies, Um, had it not been for the huge number of Israeli casualties, both civilian and military, I think that the world would have kind of looked at it as as a less dramatic event. It's it's when the, you know, when the oppressor and the colonizer suffers such a a setback, and suddenly uh, it is being treated a bit differently uh, than uh, before. So yeah, so so I think uh, uh, this is something. The quest, the big question, which I'm, I'm afraid I don't have, I don't have a huge, a, a very accurate, and full answer, is is it a, a transformative event? That's the big question. Is is it such a? I mean, it's definitely some. Un, it has some unprecedented aspects, right? But is it is it going to transform the reality for either Israelis or Palestinians? And then that's a far more difficult question. To answer, we we are a bit clearer what's going to happen in the near future. We are much more in the dark when it comes to the more distant future, but we probably will talk about it. One thing I wanted to talk about with you, uh, Professor Pape, is, um, and I I know you've gone over this before, uh, you've written a whole book uh, about this, or at least part of a book that deals with this, you've written about uh, your own academic career, and your journey out of sort of the political Zionist ideology, could you just give a brief overview of how you may have started out a Zionist and how you came to question that a lot more? Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah, I did, I did write a book called Out of the Frame uh, on this. Uh, it, it was a journey. It was not uh, one moment. It was There was no epiphany, one being, you know, uh, a moment of awakening. Uh, it was a journey that probably uh, 
in my case, started in 1982 with the Israeli invasion of Lebanon that was so clearly an, an, a choice war, so to speak. And it, it occurred at the time that I was already two years into my doctorate dissertation, researching 1948, discovering uh, in the archives uh, evidence that contradicted much of what I was uh, uh, taught and uh, contradicted the narrative on which, on the basis of which I grew. Uh, and that combination of uh, watching uh, an Israeli action from the outside, uh, and one which was utterly aggressive and not defensive, contrary to what the Israelis were talking, telling us all over the years, and at the same time looking at evidence that contradicted the Israeli narrative about 1948, began a journey, a serious journey, outside of the uh, Zionist uh, tribe, if you want. And then came the first intifada in 1987. Uh, I mean, a lot of people who might have been more pro-Israelis uh, could not uh, ignore the fact that this was an uprising by an occupied and oppressed people, and there was no doubt anymore who's the occupier and who's the occupied. Of course, there were still people very pro-Israelis even after that, but I think, like me, others as well, so that as another indication that you have to rethink uh, uh, what is the essence of the conflict that rages in Israel and Palestine, what are the origins of that uh, conflict, uh, and therefore also what is the way out of it. And by, by the 1990s, I was out of it. I mean, I mean, I sort of crossed the river, so to speak, uh, without looking back. Uh, and both politically and academically, I was already much more at peace with myself and knowing exactly where, where I was, uh, you know, morally, uh, or, and uh, positioned myself in a clear and total solidarity with the Palestinian liberation uh, movement. I find that ideological change doesn't really happen in these eureka moments most of the time. It's usually somebody, you know, explaining something to you and you go, no, that can't be right. And then you you see historical events pile up in front of you and eventually, you know, it wears you down. Um, one interesting thing is that you and my dad are actually the same age. He was in uh, he was in Beirut at the time um, uh, in the camps and that kind of thing. Um, one thing I was very curious about um, I understand that you served in 1973, and I I have been particularly with like the recent like propaganda pushes, and frankly, what I see is just very lazy and haphazard attempts at, that I assume are for domestic consumption. Um, what what was your thinking going into 1973? It's like a young man. What yeah. what what motivated you? Yeah, well. <laughs> Nobody is motivated to go to the army in Israel. You have to go to the army. <laughs> yeah, you yeah. conscripted. It was nothing motivated me to go. Although, of course, I'm very proud that my children refused. But in those days, uh, you know, two or three people refused to go to the army. We were so much indoctrinated that we didn't even think twice about the option. That there was actually an option to be in jail instead of being in the army. Uh, uh, which the generation of my children see much more as a as a viable option, but well, yeah. we were not there. We were not there. We were first generation of uh, of our par immigrant parents who came from Europe, so nobody questioned the idea of going to the army. So that's one thing, and, and therefore you 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 don't come with any kind of revolutionary or uh, contradictory ideas. Um, but I do think that, uh, you know, and, and this doesn't happen immediately. In the long run, what you see in the battlefield, uh, as I did, uh, in 1973 affects you a bit, but it doesn't happen immediately. There is a kind of a trauma uh, that you experience as a soldier, and uh, uh, the post-traumatic kind of side comes much, much later, much, much later. Uh, and for me, it was easier to deal with it because uh, once I had a better ideological and moral conceptualization, what happened, I could also deal with, with the things I've seen uh, in the battlefield uh, in 1973. But uh, it took a while. What I'm trying to say is that uh, 
you know, I was quite depoliticized, I don't know how to call it, apolitical soldier, if you want. I did what I was told to do. And uh, coming out of the army, it took me time before I began to to question uh, basic truisms. Among them, the one that says you have to serve in an army, uh, and it doesn't matter what the army does. And, and all and these two assumptions, of course, I I questioned very seriously afterwards, but uh, not immediately. Not immediately, I have to say. With regards to that issue of. Um the propaganda we see coming out during wars like this. I, I know Carl was interested in asking you about just, it seems a, a lot of people, a lot of people in my age bracket and Carl's up are looking at the propaganda coming out from the Israeli side and saying, this is like really just over the top and poor propaganda. What do you make of the propaganda that's coming out of Israel is it different this time around? Are people seeing through it more? What, what's the what's the mo behind the propaganda? Because a lot of people are seeing through it this time around. First of all, you know, propaganda like this rests on layers of history. It doesn't begin on the seventh of October. Uh, this is an ongoing propaganda. It's more than propaganda. Uh, Israel, uh, the Jewish society of Israel, is a very indoctrinated society from cradle to grave. Uh, and therefore, you don't need to work too hard on the propaganda because already most people went through an education system and listened to a mainstream media that dehumanizes the Palestinians, uh, constantly comparing them to, to, to Nazis, constantly referring them to primitive savages and barbarians. So there's nothing new in a way. I mean, there's not that... You needed a special propaganda machine or office to produce the, the kind of uh, propaganda Israelis is, is produced, uh, especially for domestic consumption, uh, after the 7th of October. Uh, what What is the difference? I think the difference is that until the 7th of October, at least for uh, some politicians or people who are the ones who produce the propaganda and disseminate the propaganda, there was an attempt to, I don't know, to wrap it up as a bit more civilized. They're using more, you know, a launderette of, of words rather than directly using a, a language of, of racism and, and, and so on. And what the 7th of October does, it allows them not to, to hide behind this uh, launderetted or uh, a kind of, uh, you know, a tame... Uh, wording and and just talk directly of what they always meant but could not express uh, directly like uh, you know comparing the Palestinians in Gaza to the Amaleks the Amalekites uh, people in the Bible who were genocided to the last uh, uh, talking about uh, wiping out the Gaza Strip and so on uh, and not. And this 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 kind the division of labor in Israel was that this kind of talk is uh, only is never expressed by the more respectable center or people in in the center of politics and it's much more uh, employed by the uh, lunatic fringes of the right uh, and 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 after the seventh of October it became a common uh, language uh, so it has moved. From, from the fringes into main center. Uh, it, you're right. It's it, for anyone with a modicum of, I don't know, morality, logic, uh, a, norm, a normative human being, listening to that uh, propaganda would see through it immediately, uh, would be probably quite astonished uh, how uh, in the 21st century, leaders of a country that talks like this are still regarded as part of the community of civilized nations or, or whatever. Um, uh, but um, uh, this is this is the kind of, I think this is the main conclusion Israeli politicians drew from what they thought was an unconditional solidarity with Israel because of what happened on the 7th of October, 
on part of the political elites. I mean, they're fully aware that the societies are not with them, but on part of the political elites, they thought if this is such, the sympathies were so, you know, pouring. Every every leader in the West made it a point to come to Israel on the 8th of October, the 9th of October. Uh, the parliament in Britain was donned with the colors of the Israeli flag. The Eiffel Tower was donned with the colors of the Israeli flag. So, so the message was, oh, actually, they understand us. They, they they understand what we we they share our perceptions and language and so on, and uh, and that's why I think it went more wild than usually it is. I mean, it was bad enough before, but but I don't remember people with central position expressing themselves in this way. But uh, you know, they have they have they have an audience. Uh, it's re- most of the Israeli Jews in Israel are, are behind them and are using the same language in their private conversation or in their interaction with 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 the elite. When you say uh, when you say political elites, I want to I want to make sure people are clear what you mean, because mm-hmm. I think a lot of people here in the U.S. think, oh, the problem is just Netanyahu. When Netanyahu goes away and we get a Benny Gantz or a year Lapid in power, uh, everything will just, it just seems like there's people in the U.S., especially in the punditry here, that think everything will magically get better. And I have to be honest, I'm, I'm very critical of that view. I'd like your take on that because I feel yeah. as if there's a lot of, um, there's this idea that liberal Zionism can return and these figures that aren't part of the Likud party can save Israel and, you know, bring about a lasting peace. I'm very skeptical of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm I'm with you on that. First of all, I don't think that liberal Zionists are any force to reckon with in Israeli politics. I mean, what we call the Israeli left is has long time ago disappeared. Uh, it doesn't have, it hardly has any representation in the Israeli uh, parliament. Uh, and nobody's listening to it uh, in in Israel, and that it's it's kind of a, a extinct creatures in, in many ways. What what you are talking about, and, and that's probably the punditry is, is talking about, is the fact that you have now two basic political forces in the Israeli political uh, elite. One is what you can call the center right, uh, which is uh, the Israeli. Um, parties that are Zionists to the core uh, are willing every now and then to pay some lip service to the idea of the two-state solution, but don't really mean it. Uh, And most of the important figures in that camp are generals, ex-generals, who committed some of the worst war crimes against the the Palestinians. Uh, They were in opposition because they belong to the most secular Israel that we've we forgot about it that until the 6th of October was fighting for its life against the more right-wing uh, component um, and, and now joined forces with the other camp. And the other camp is the right-wing. Uh, I'll talk about Netanyahu in a moment because he doesn't belong to either camp. Um, the, the the other camp is what I, I call the state of Judea. This is the, the, the settler state. These are the people who grew up in the settlements. Uh, they are messianic, they are fanatic, they are fundamentalist, they are racist. Uh, they hold important positions in the government. Uh, and uh, they have, they're the ones who, who uh, definitely also see the other camp as a problem because they, they, they don't like the idea of secular Judaism as well. And they don't like uh, e- even the, the limited liberalism that these people believe in is a heresy in the eyes of the the state of of Judea. It's really a, a proper theocratic kind of group. Netanyahu, whose only ideology is to stay in power, he doesn't really have any vision or any ideological uh, ideas. Uh, his only ideas is to stay in power. Uh, understood very well the electoral balance in Israel, so he went with the state of Judea, with a right wing messianic fanatic group, and it won him the elections. The problem was that the 7th of October traumatized the Israeli society. So he very cleverly took in uh, the other camp. Uh, so he has both camps now working with him. 
uh, because of the, the needed unity, if you want, in the face of a crisis. Um, but uh, in terms of, I mean, if you're looking for genuine differences between these two sides, when it comes to the Palestinians, there's one good indication why there is no difference. When the uh, the other, I call it the state of Israel, the more liberal Zionist, the more secular Zionist, went to huge demonstrations before the 7th of October, uh, fighting for their political life against uh, the state of Judea. They wanted to change the, juris the jurisdiction in Israel, the judicial system, you know, everything. They really wanted to turn Israel into a theocracy. And these, fight these people were fighting for a more secular Israel. The camp that was fighting for a more secular Israel did not want any Palestinians to be part of the, you know, of the demonstration. In fact, they refused to allow Palestinians to be part of that demonstration. They don't, didn't see any connection between the occupation and their own struggle. So in other words, this is an internal Israeli-Jewish debate. And, and because it's an internal Jewish debate, you can see that as far as the Palestinians are concerned, whether you are a liberal Zionist or a, an extreme right-wing Zionist, there is something common in this perception that the Palestinians do not exist do not have a right to be there. Uh, and you should use any method in your possession to get rid uh, of the Palestinians or to have as much of Palestine as possible with a few Palestinians uh, in it as possible. The tactics are different. The language is different. The vision is very much the same. Uh, to put it in a short sentence, I don't think you can be a liberal colonizer. You cannot be an enlightened ethnic cleanser. You cannot be a progressive uh, a, a, a oppressor. Uh, it doesn't work. Uh, and I think that that's one of the reasons this uh, alleged uh, serious ideological debate between moderates and, and fanatics that the punditry you are talking about refers to ignores the fact that this is in, in totally an internal Jewish uh, debate. It would, it would be akin to a debate among supremacist whites in South Africa of what kind of an apartheid system do they want for the whites uh, and, and still agree on the fact that apartheid is the right system as far as the Africans in South Africa are concerned. Thank you for reinforcing uh, my predilection towards just not following Israeli political minutiae. Um, I do really appreciate the fact that the primary leverage of the protest movement was the idea that people would refuse to be called up for reserves. Uh, that immediately faded at the first opportunity. <laughs> yeah. um, but something I really wanted to get into today with you is your archival work. That's something that I'm very interested in. Um, I'm particularly interested in like archiving Palestinian history, you know, collecting like modern oral uh, history and that kind of thing. Um, I wanted to ask you how you got access to these archives. Um, how open were they? What were the limitations? Um, I assume, correct me if I'm wrong, but I assume many documents from 1948 and before were destroyed, not allowed to be publicly accessible. What what was the situation you found yourself in and what, what information was available to you? Yeah, it's an interesting story. Uh, Israel follows, at least theoretically, the British uh, law on declassification, which is a 30 years rule uh, uh, for most documents and 50 years rule for documents that deal with security issues and does not open certain documents if the people involved are still alive. These are the three, these were the three principles. Uh, and when uh, I started working in the Israeli archives in the uh, late, in the very early 1980s, uh, uh, that meant that uh, some interesting documents were open. Uh, only recent, only later, I understood that in fact Israel declassified about two percent, only two percent of the 48 uh, documents. Uh, but the thing is, the thing is, which is interesting, that it was enough to use the 2% of these documents to challenge the Israeli narrative. And the reason was 
that much of the evidence I gathered that challenged the Israeli narrative was not in the archives. It was in open sources, in the uh, memoirs of, of, of generals, uh, in something called the brigade books. Every every military unit in Israel from '48 had a book in which it summarized its activities and had appendixes that included documents as well. So it was the moment you were open open enough to understand uh, uh, that uh, how to read these documents um, and and kind of deconstruct them if you want. Uh, you could have you could have a very good picture of what happened, even if most of the documents apparently were still classified. The second uh, kind of uh, chapter in this plot is even more intriguing. Uh, in 2016, uh, a special uh, section in the Israeli government that is under the prime minister's office, uh, it, it, it's called the Malmad. Its, its job is to find out, uh, is really to supervise the declassification of documentation. And and they they did kind of an assessment in 2016, and they found out, to their big surprise, what the world already knew. Don't know why it took them so long. But in 2016, they published a report and said that the declassification of these 2% of the documents became a national, it became a threat to Israel's national interest. And they should be reclassified because uh, uh, historians, and to my uh, credit, they mentioned my my name in it. Historians like me were abusing the freedom of research uh, and used these uh, documents in order to defame uh, Israel and so on. And it was much better that these sources should be uh, reclassify. Now, I don't know what they mean by reclassification. Does it mean that they destroyed documents or they buried them or one day we will be able to reaccess them? Hard to know. Hard to know. But I know that an important chunk, for example, uh, something called the village files, which helped me to establish very clearly that the ethnic cleansing of 48 was planned about eight years before it happened. Uh, is not accessible anymore. Uh, and when I asked about it, I was told by a very senior official in the Israeli archives, and unfortunately there was a fire, which is, I mean, they, they don't they don't even, you know, they don't make even an effort when they tell these stories. He said there was a fire, unfortunately, and most of these documents uh, went in flames. And I said, but I've never heard about that fire. Uh, surely, I mean, it's a small country. We would have heard about the fire in the archive. It's it's quite dramatic. He said, no, it was a small fire. <laughs> it was like the fire only only touched the uh, the, the the village fires or something like that. I I I, I don't know. I, whatever happened there, uh, it, it's very clear that um, they regret even the limited free access they gave scholars before that to, to archives. Do you have any uh, advice for anybody interested in doing similar work, uh, you know, particularly taking into account any measures that have been put in place to prevent future Ilans? It doesn't have to necessarily be related to Palestine. Um, but Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. Well, I, I'm very glad, you know, I intuitively, I Xeroxed every village file I could find and I will put them very soon on an, on a website. So I, I think that you should assume, as a rule, that what you see can be temporary and uh, find a way of having it somewhere else. Uh, don't, don't assume you'll be able to, to, to come back. If anything that governments allow you to see, they might regret uh, if if they think that the end product is something they did not anticipate. So I think it's very important to, you know, immediately take over. And then there is also in Israel, I don't know how relevant it is in the United States, in Israel, because um, everything is so politicized, uh, there are different political archives, and it depends who was in power. So some of the documents that we were not allowed to see 
in the Israeli state archives appeared in the political archives of parties who happened to be part of the government at the time. Oh, interesting. Uh, because uh, nobody went through their their archives and declassify and, and reclassified the documents. So it's always good to juxtapose different archives as well. I wanted to ask you, in terms of the history you've covered, especially in the ethnic cleansing of Palestine, that's a very important book in my view. I hope people will read it. What were the actual operations and, and blueprints and plans that you covered in that book that you think are most important for people to take into account? So I know there's plan, I don't want to mispronounce them, but plan de lat, and then yeah. also Operation Palm Tree, which which are the most important ones that people need to know about? Yeah. Well, I think the important one, first of all, there's Plan Dalet or Plan D, indeed, of the 10th of March, 1948, because uh, it's a very clear master plan for the ethnic cleansing of Palestine that includes uh, a very detailed orders uh, to the troops of how to deal with villages and neighborhoods in Palestine, uh, which includes the, the direct order of expelling the population outside of the country's borders, uh, uh, demolishing uh, the houses and putting uh, explosive in the ruins uh, so that people will not be able to, to come back. I, I think it's kind of a black and white uh, uh, evidence uh, that um, any that the idea was to remove the Palestinians from Palestine. I mean, not just to to to, to defeat or defend Israel. Uh, secondly, uh, uh, the archives included enough uh, direct orders to units on the ground for the several operations. Um, and and just recently, I I I, I re republished uh, an order which was very relevant for what's going on today. Um, and I mentioned it in some of my, my pieces I've written since. Um, you know that the, uh, uh, the Gaza Strip was created by Israel. Uh, there was no Gaza Strip before 1948. If you look at the map, you can see this rectangle very, with very, uh, uh, you know, uh, straight lines of, by a ruler. A and this was created by Israel as a, a receptor for the hundreds of thousands of Palestinians Israel expelled from the central and south of Palestine and pushed them into the Gaza Strip. And the last wave of expulsion was from villages which were very near the Gaza city. And, and on the ruins of these villages, the settlements that were attacked on the 7th of October were built. So there was a direct interest and, and, and emotional, if you want, attachment by the refugees of Gaza to these particular settlements that were uh, attacked. Uh, and, and there's one document uh, that is still with me, which is called Order Number 40, sent from the uh, uh, Israeli Central Command to the commanders on that area around Gaza. And it lists the name of 13 villages uh, on, which, on whose ruins later these Israeli settlements would be built. And it says very clearly in order number 40 from the 25th of November, 1948, it says, occupy these villages, expel all the people to, to the city of Gaza, uh, uh, set fire to the villages because many of the uh, homes in the villages were of, uh, of clay and, and uh, straw. Uh, so set fire and demolish those uh, houses which are made of stone, you know, st stone houses. And, and that's so direct, it, it's kind of uh, without any language that is, you know, tries to hide anything. Uh, so I think this is very important. The last thing I would say is the names that the Israelis use for their operation, you know, like uh, Operation Broom, you know, sweeping people, Operation uh, Lavin, this idea of the Jewish Passover that you are looking for the last uh, bits of um, of bread because you're not allowed to eat bread in in Passover. So there is there's a term in Hebrew for how you clean the house to make sure that n not even one crumb of bread is left in the house. And they use these names to to for for the occupation of Jaffa and the occupation of Haifa. And you can understand who the 
what what who's the bread and who are the crumbs of the bread uh so i think that's also very important i had two more questions i know carl had one more uh if you could stay a, a few more minutes um mm -hmm. carl uh what did you want to ask uh i was curious if you had any uh information this is just personal family history um i was i was curious if you had any information on the sweeps in 1976 and around that era against like the pflp and other groups in the west bank um any sort of like um mass arrests like my father was caught up in the oh i, I see mass I see. arrests yeah, in 76 yeah. i believe with mm -hmm. quite a few other yeah. people um he went mm -hmm. to lebanon mm -hmm. after mm -hmm. that mm -hmm. um, yeah yeah this is a kind of an um unresearched uh, under-researched uh, period uh but we should remind the the listeners and viewers uh, in 1976 uh, uh itzhak rabin was the government it was the first rabin government and uh, uh, he was very much in favor, like most people in the Labour Party at the time, for what was called the Jordanian option, uh, namely the idea that there should be some sort of settlement over the fate of the West Bank together with Jordan. And, and therefore, Rabin allowed, uh, for the first time since 67, he allowed uh, the people to have municipal uh, elections. Uh, he, was, he was confident that the pro-Jordanian, candidates would win the election. And to his great surprise, the people who won the elections were the people of the, uh, all the secular uh, Palestinian uh, factions of the liberation movement, the Fatah, the Popular Front, the Popular Democratic Front. They are the ones who won the elections, uh, which really took the Israelis by, by, by surprise. And one of the reaction was a mass arrest of these activists that Israel itself encouraged first to be democratic. It reminds us of what happened in Gaza in 2006. Israel said, yes, let's let them have an election of who would replace the Israeli rule. And when the election um, result did not tally with the Israeli vision, they, they imposed this horrible siege on, on Gaza. So, so I, I think this is important because this is the time when Israel decides that it's much better to attack directly secular and leftist Palestinian factions and promote and help political Islamic groups to take their place. Israel, I mean, there was no Hamas yet in 76, but there were branches of the Muslim Brotherhood from which Hamas uh, originated and also the Islamic Jihad. And, and Israel thought uh, it would be much better to help them to to be the powerful side in the domestic Palestinian politics, uh, because uh, it would be easier to to control it. Uh, of course, they regretted this uh, uh, decision later on, but uh, they they really uh, uh, went on a frontal confrontation with secular and left groups in the Palestinian political uh, side. Thank you. That that's very helpful information. It's it is a very under-researched topic. JG? Uh, One thing I really wanted to ask you about, and I had listeners that wanted me to ask you about this. Um, a lot of people wanted me to ask you about the Tentora massacre and also uh, the troubles that maybe academics and even uh, students that were writing dissertations on this had uh, in Israel when they tried to cover the topic. Could you discuss maybe what was Tentora and then what, what troubles have academics had covering it in Israel? Yeah, yeah. Well, ironically, it all started with um, a student of mine who attended the course I gave in 1948. And um, uh, I suggested to him and to other students, uh, uh, it was an MA course, that they should look at local histories in 1948 to... to that they would use something we call in history microhistory. I said we we have the we have the big picture of forty eight, but we need now a research on locations in forty eight. And this particular student was uh, interested in in five villages south of the city of Haifa, and one of them was Tantura. It's thirty kilometers south of Haifa, and uh, uh, he was interested in methodology. Namely, he said. He was interested in how do you use Israeli archival material together with oral testimonies. So he started interviewing people from Tantura and Israeli soldiers who participated in the occupation of Tantura. 
And to his great surprise, he heard from both sides that an unknown massacre uh, on quite a huge massacre occurred uh, in the village. And he published it as part of his dissertation. Uh, the University uh, of Haifa had uh, people in, in powerful positions who were both in family connections and uh, ideological connection with uh, the particular unit that committed the massacre. And uh, they encouraged, in fact, the military there uh, to, or the veterans of that unit to, to take action uh, against the, the dissertation. I mean, they tried first to persuade the student to, to change the, the uh, outcome of his thesis, which he refused. So these veterans took him to court. Uh, uh, and um, and uh, he broke down. He broke down, and uh, unfortunately, and uh, at first was, you know, writing a confession that he fabricated the evidence. Eight hours later, he went to the judge and he said, that, no, no, I didn't fabricate anything, but it was too late and his whole life changed. He had a, a stroke. His uh, uh, degree was disqualified. Uh, and the message, and that is the most important thing, the message was, especially for Palestinian students working on 48 in Israel. If this is what they're doing to a Jewish student, I should mention it was a Jewish student. If that's what they're doing to a Jewish students, imagine what they would do to Palestinian students who who uh, challenged the Israeli narrative of, of 40, uh, 48. Uh, so it became very dangerous in, in many ways in terms of academic career to, 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 to work on these issues. What is really incredible is the last kind of twist in the plot. A uh, few two years ago, uh, an Israeli director did a film on Tantura, and he went back to the same veterans that sued the student in the first place. That that was back in two thousand and one, and one or two of them said, "Yeah, we lied to the court, of course, but we we didn't want to defame ourselves." You know, yes, of course he was right. Uh, uh, not only was he right, he's right that this is what we told him, you know. Um, uh, so he was a little bit vindicated, but um, it was too late for him, of course. Uh, and it just shows you that uh, what was really worrying in the reaction to the film, because the film shows all of us who were involved in the Tantura case were right. And uh, I lost my job in Haifa. He lost his uh, MA. Uh, so people paid highly. For that affair, uh, and and yes, you know it's it's like it's it's really crazy. I mean, the 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 head, the president of the Haifa or the, the chancellor of Haifa University writes to me. I'm sorry that this is what happened, but he writes privately. So I said, why don't you write it openly? He said, no, no, I can't write it openly. I can only write to you privately. Then I'm sorry that more or less that we expelled you. Um, and that's that's so typical, you know that this. And these are people who are in powerful position, but they are afraid, afraid to to challenge uh, as academics the narrative. And and you know this kind of timidity is is worrying when the, when academics are involved. And I remember, you know, my parents, uh, my father was an academic in Germany in the thirties, and he said to me, the worst thing was not the Nazi thugs, the worst thing were my colleagues who who you know who buried their face in the newspaper when we were attacked. This was the worst thing, he said. Not the Nazi thugs. I said, you don't expect much of thugs and you're not you're not too impressed by them. But when your colleagues are burying their face in the newspaper, when your colleagues are being thrown out of the window, that's, that's when you lose hope for humanity. I, yeah, I've seen those interviews. They're very powerful. And I think they've been spread far and wide. They're, you know, they're very well known. And I think they've, they're definitely more prominent than any Im implied academic threat at this point. Yeah, so, definitely. Consolation. Yeah. The, the last thing I wanted to ask you about was, um, you know, you've you've written a whole book about the myths around Israel Palestine, and there's so many of them. From, um, you know, I I mean, I I I can't speak about it without being very angry. But uh, you know, the myths like Joan Peters from Time Immemorial, which I consider, yeah. I'm sorry, but I consider. I, I will not mince words. I think it's garbage. This idea that yeah. there were no Palestinians or the land was empty. Uh, and then there's the myths about, oh, well, the Arab states uh, sent out radio broadcasts telling the Palestinians to leave. 
Um, but what do you consider the most noxious of all the myths we have uh, about Israel and the ways in which uh, Nakba denial happens? What What do you think the most noxious of the myths are? Yeah, I think two of them are particularly uh, obnoxious. One is the, the, the empty land, which... I, I, you can still hear. I mean, if you heard the uh, president of the EU uh, uh, well, eight months ago, uh, when Israel celebrated its 75th uh, anniversary in May, May 2023, in her uh, speech, she said that Israel bloomed the desert, namely that Palestine was a desert before the Zionist movement came. So you can see it's still a very strong uh, a narrative that that the, the Jewish the Zionist uh, movement came to an empty land, which is is really uh, I mean there's so much research that contradicts this that it's surprising that you know politician of such uh, high position talk such an such an idiotic and such an idiotic way and uh, you know just recently I I approached the charity commission in Britain for. Uh, a special uh, charity that we want to create on defending the Nakba memory. And and the response was, well, we, we are not sure that there is a Palestinian people. So can you explain if there are or aren't? I mean, this is this is 2023. This is, uh, you know, December 2023. So th that is something that is the gap between the stupidity of this myth and the fact that still important people still believe in it. it drives me mad the second one is is the uh the the one about uh, the nakba i mean this that you can still hear definitely read in the uh, website of the israeli foreign ministry the 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 repeat of the idea that the palestinians left voluntarily uh palestine because or at least they left because uh, arab leaders and their own leaders told them to to leave uh, I, I mean, these two myths, uh, because they're so easily contradicted by historical research and facts and still hold water, shows you that powers, it, it, the, the, there is a strong lobby there. There is a strong lobby. There's no other explanation that makes sure that even the most ridiculous uh, statement about history are still valid in the eyes of, of many people. And, and it's probably not enough just to produce the research, but you need to keep struggling against the logic behind it and expose. I think more important now for me, and uh, after exposing the facts themselves, is now to expose the reason why these facts are being denied. And I think that that's, uh, that's uh, I just finished the book. I hope it will come out in 2024 which is called lobbying for Zionism on both sides of the Atlantic, uh, because I, I, I said to myself, the next stage is now to expose not what, what are the facts, but why were they denied uh, when all the facts were there uh, in front of us. Closing out here, I want to give you the final word, but, um, you know, there's uh, so many voices out there that are speaking up on these topics now, and with regards to Zionism, you know, I have a lot of respect for people like Peter Beinert here in the U.S. or someone mm -hmm. like Jeff Halper in Israel, mm -hmm. who uh, runs the One Democratic State Campaign and the Israeli Committee Against Housing Demolitions. I know they would consider themselves cultural Zionists, and I think they hope for a re-separation of cultural Zionism and political right. Zionism. Uh, do you agree with that sentiment? And do you think the political Zionist projects, days are numbered, at least in the long term. Yeah. Well, uh, you can add to the list also Noam Chomsky. And, and, and in, in one of the, I think it was in the first book I wrote with him, uh, we have this discussion. He still believes in cultural Zionism, and, and I, I negated this, this idea, I don't think it. Because for me, cultural Zionism was a moment in history where before Zionism became a settler colonial movement. Namely, there is a chapter in Zionism uh, when physically and geographically it's not in Palestine. They can You can see it as, as a cultural reawakening, redefining Judaism as, as nationalism and so on, which, which really does not affect the life of people in Palestine. But the moment, I think, especially in the early 1920s, when it becomes a clear settler colonial project, uh, 
the cultural Zionism is just another beautification of the oppression and colonization. I don't think it offers something something else. So no, I, I don't think I, I think that and I understand I, I understand the, the impulse. The impulse is to try and see if there's you can re- expand the group within Israeli Jews that would be willing to live in one state by offering them cultural Zionism. I'm not, you know, you know, words, uh, adjectives have to be to be uh, unpacked, and maybe there is something there. If, if, uh, and I'm I'm also a member of the One Democratic State campaign, and we agreed we don't talk about cultural Zionism there. We said that probably one of the principles would be allowing the Jews to have a cultural collective identity, if that's what they want, you know. And there's nothing new in the Eastern Mediterranean. A lot of groups would, would want to have cultural ethnic identity, but would not demand that this identity is imposed on the state. Uh, so some sort of a Hebrew culture, Jewish Hebrew culture, as something that is protected, recognized. Yeah, but I wouldn't call it culture Zionism, because it would be would be an antithesis to the Zionist idea. It would be bringing back Judaism into the fold of culture and, and faith rather than into a political ideology. And for you, last question. I, I do believe we're seeing, we be, we are at the beginning of the end of the Zionist project. The problem as an historian, I know that the end of projects is very a very uh, dangerous time because the the those who maintain the project are fighting for their life as well. And they can be very ruthless and very, very cruel and 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 uh, and fierce, especially because it is the last phases. And, and, and another kind of warning is that uh, historically the big an end of projects uh, can be a long a long uh, business of more than you know more than a decade. But I think we are there. We, we are at the beginning. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't. It doesn't hold water, um, despite an amazing achievement in terms of high tech, economy, military, uh, international legitimacy from above. Despite all these achievements, there are serious cracks in the wall, and they are getting wider and wider by the day. And uh, you know this whole idea of planting a European state in the midst of the Arab world is not going to work for long. Not just that, but as uh, as Rashid Halidi said to me recently, you know, having a state that is built on, you know, maintaining security by creating permanent insecurity for yeah. another people, in this case, the Palestinians, it's, it doesn't work for anyone. It doesn't work for no, Israeli it Jews. It doesn't work for Palestinians. Absolutely. 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 This is a, a dismal future and uh, and that wouldn't have longevity. That, that's that's true. I, I agree with this. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you so much, uh, Professor Pape, for coming on Parallax News. I kept you a few minutes over. My apologies for that. Uh, thank, thank you, you so again. Much. Thank you very much. It was good to see you guys. Thank you. Bye bye. Well, that does it for this edition of Parallax Views. I hope you enjoyed our conversation with Professor Elan Pape. And, uh, you know, as always, if you appreciate the work here I do, at Parallax Views, patreon.com slash Parallax Views. Kick me some money there, patreon.com slash Parallax Views. It is you, the listener, that keeps this show afloat. I only have one advertiser, the mighty Mike Swanson. Wall Street window, but otherwise, this is listeners support it. So please, you know, don't be a Scrooge this holiday season. Kick some money over to yours truly at patreon.com slash parallax use and check out the West Bank robbery podcast. Any parting thoughts, Bassam? Uh, yeah, you, you basically hit all the high notes. Uh, I really, really enjoyed that interview. That was, uh, you know. Thanks for bringing me along. That was, uh, you know, really enlightening. Um, the, what's the kids say these days? That was fire. Yeah, that was fucking lit, bro. Um, uh, yeah, uh, and you know, thanks for plugging the show and stuff. Um, you know, c- come check me out. Hit me up on Twitter if you want to yell at me or something. Um, yeah, uh, and subscribe to the uh, Parallax Use Patreon. This man puts in more work than anybody I've ever met in my life. Uh, and 
You can figure out what kind of facial hair I have because it's not what you'd expect. I'm just kidding. West Bank Robbery, that's on is it what what uh podcasting app is it on? Uh we use Captivate. I'll send you the RSS. Okay, so Captivate FM. Yeah. And hey, you should that's be able to find it for... everywhere. Yeah. No, uh we're talking we over each other. This. Yeah, yeah. You want to re-record this final segment? Okay. No, no. So we I think we're good. Fun. I think we're good. Anyways, sure. with that being said, until next time, you've been listening to Parallax Views with Parallax Views to Parallax Views with Parallax Views. The way out is not simply to say don't do it. Just to prohibit. If nothing else, if we don't do it, others will be doing it like crazy. So, you know, we have to confront the problem. But no, basically, basically, I'm, I know of the great anxiety problems, new forms of control, but it's also new forms of freedom. This is why I always emphasize that uh, uh, internet and all this new digital stuff it's a very ambiguous phenomenon, but it's the field of struggle. New forms of enslavement, but at the same time, new incredible forms of freedom. We have to accept the fight with no nostalgia for old, allegedly more authentic communities or whatever. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid.